Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Well, let's hang out a little bit here and talk about this uh, this year of ours. How much more challenged is our national economy the end of December 2020 than it was at the beginning of the year in January? Um, you know, it... Uh As soon as I was thinking about our chat today about will the economy bounce back, I don't know why, but I was thrown back to 1983. I was 16 years old, my first year of high school at A.Y. Jackson Secondary School in Toronto, and I actually got up the courage to ask a girl on a date. And her response to me is kind of my response to you, which is she said, "I, I would love to say yes, but I see no reason to be positive. And that's kind of where I sit with you today. Uh, Our economy is in very, very rough shape. And I appreciate the people that you have on and that I hear on the media saying it's going to be okay. It's going to bounce back. It's going to come back. Um, And that really harkens back to a lesson of macroeconomics, which is after studying this thing for almost 25 years, I've come to conclude that there's two things that I know for a fact. Number one, something has to give in an economy. If you push, something has to push back. And maybe more importantly, number two, what goes up must come down and then back again. So, you know, we, we operate on business cycles and they have peaks and they have troughs. And the reality is, yes, I mean, the economy will not be bad forever because no economy in the history of man and womankind has ever been bad forever. But that's about the most positive thing that we're going to say today, which is recovery is inevitable. But when is inevitable? How long is inevitable? And how many people is it going to take down before we hit inevitable? So that's a really long-winded way of saying we're in trouble. Yeah. Uh, Did you ever go out with that girl? No, no. She never said yes. I'm sorry. Um, But I liked your answer. And... You know, we we have a massive deficit. We have massive national debt. We have uh, provincial debt. We have Canadians who are carrying uh, more than a trillion dollars in personal debt. So the next question I have for you is this. Can we grow the economy during the pandemic, even if there are developments like the COVID variant, which has just become public knowledge? Can we grow the economy during this uh, pandemic? It's an excellent question, and the answer is no. Uh, no, it, uh, it, it, it won't grow. Um, I mean, I took a look at some of the sort of season-ending statistics that, that uh, I thought the good listeners might want to know, and just sort of what's, what is down right now uh, with no perceivable um, belief that it's going to bounce back anytime soon, right? Well, monthly output, month-to-month real GDP growth is down tremendously. Consumer, consumer confidence remains very weak. Output is well below pre-crisis trends. Unemployment is way too high. The service industry is decimated. Travel and tourism is decimated. Uh, Real household income is down almost 8%. I mean, so you're going to ask, well, okay, so that's bad. What's good? What are the growth industries right now? And you probably could guess them. Number one, supermarkets and grocery stores. Number two, medical device manufacturing. And number three, you better be sitting down, check cashing services. So this does not paint the prettiest picture for the Canadian economy. And, no. and again, um, I, every time I'm on with you, I like to preface my comments by saying I don't really live my life as negative as I sound 
sometimes on the radio, but I think, I think the worst thing to do is give people false hope. I know a lot of people are suffering. A lot of people are one paycheck away from real disaster, and COVID hasn't made it better. So I'm not going to come on and say things are wonderful when you see hotels, motels, restaurants, travel, airlines, even oil drilling. All of these industries are so far below pre-COVID levels that it, it's just such a stretch such a stretch to say that things are going to bounce back. Yes, Roy, they're going to bounce back eventually. But but to the good listeners, we are not at eventually. Yeah. We uh, we heard from a guest uh, from the Hotel Association, the president, uh, about a month ago, that up to 50% of the uh, hotels, motels, uh, resorts in this country could be done. Is that the canary in the coal mine? Um, yeah, I mean, as we discussed that day when we took apart the hotel industry, I said 50% yes. of any industry is a canary in a coal mine. But you're talking 50% of a billion-dollar industry. That um, spurs so much spending due to things like, well, some people call it trickle-down or a marginal propensity. The point is, is when you bring in tourism dollars, those tourism dollars have a, have a very high multiplier effect. They are spent over and over and over and so you start, that makes me, and I hope some of your listeners, say to yourselves, okay, what, what is real gross domestic product? I've, I've said before on your show, it's the score. How is the economy doing? How do we compare ourselves? And it's not a hard thing to add up. It's consumption, it's investment by businesses, it's government spending, and it's net exports. Well, just keeping that in the back of your mind for a second, right now, disposable income is at an all-time low. Consumption is gone down. Government spending is down, if, unless you look at CERB. Capital formation is way down. Domestic demand is down. Net exports are down. The debt-to-GDP ratio, which we were at about 30%, we were a leader in the industrialized world. We're now hovering between 50 and 60%, so that's out the window. Hours worked, forget about it. And so all that leads us to say is that real GDP or aggregate demand or whatever you want to call it, we're at levels so much lower than we were a year ago. It is, it's folly to say that we're going to bounce back in a month or two months or three months. It, it's just not going to happen. Has the economy been badly managed by uh, politicians, by governments, maybe fearful, clearly fearful of COVID, and, and appropriately so? That's a, that's a scary situation. But has the economy been, I don't want to use the word sacrificed, um, but has it been badly managed because of COVID by, by politicians, by governments? You should use the word sacrificed because it has been sacrificed. And some people are not going to like to hear this. I'm the biggest advocate there is of public health. We need public health. People have to be healthy. Uh, members of, uh, you know, in the Jewish faith, you hear all the time, without your health, you have nothing. Uh, well, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy because right now, with your health, right now you don't have much more because that's the economy's right. been hung out to dry. Uh, and one of the reasons that I say that is I look at one of the worst statistics out there, which, of course, is unemployment. Macroeconomics has two uh, problems. You know, you can sum it up into two problems. There's inflation and there's unemployment. Well, right now, inflation doesn't really exist because our government and our central bank and most central banks have had something of a holy war on inflation. And they've used inflation targeting and they've kept it between 1% and 3%. So in doing that, of course, um, you have to, by definition, let some of the resources that fight unemployment 
um, be let go. And so you know you're going to give a little bit on unemployment, but COVID has knocked unemployment to levels that you know we haven't seen in a long time. Now, Roy, to your point about sacrificing, here's what I mean. Economists sum up unemployment in, in uh, four ways. We look at four different types of unemployment. We have cyclical unemployment, which is just normal business cycle unemployment. When things are down, there's unemployment. Well, if we sacrifice the economy, we sacrifice so much more than just the word economy. It's more than just uh, saying economy. We're talking about everything from people's mental health uh, to, to just being financially viable and retaining some level of stability. And as you said, this isn't going to recover in two months or three months. Let me ask you how long you think, under optimal circumstances, will it take for the economy of Canada, and I know we're influenced by all of those around us, including the giant to the south, the United States, under the most optimal, optical, uh, optimal con- conditions, how long will it take for the, co- the economy of this country to regain stability? I, well, I mean, it's an excellent question, and I, I always say I wish I had that, uh, that crystal ball that Kreskin used to use on his show. But um, if you look at the numbers and you look at not only the, what's called the level effects but the growth effects, which means not only the, 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 how far they've gone down but the percentages that they're down, um, if you were going to hold me to a fire and say, when are we going to recover, I frankly think 2021 is a write-off. And on the contingency that this vaccine, either the Pfizer or the Moderna, hopefully both are successful and most of the Canadian population and the U.S. population are able to receive it in 2021, I think recovery starts in 2022 at best. Well, so what would you change to improve the economic reality? Would you open the borders with the United States, potentially? Would you create a system of truly cooperative interprovincial trade? I spoke with, with Premier Mo about that yesterday. We don't have that in this country, which is really strange. It's easier for countries, independent nations, to trade with, trade with one another than it is for provinces in this country to trade with one another. And I think that's a bizarre fact, and it's been a bizarre fact forever. And many of us, I was a student at the time, when Brian Mulroney was negotiating free trade, and I didn't understand, even as an undergrad, why we weren't spending more time on interprovincial trade, because you're right, it seems to be that we can get things from Mexico and the United States, Japan and China easier than we can from Manitoba. So number one, I would have interprovincial trade, I would drop pretty much all of the taxes and tariffs on interprovincial trade. And number two, and it sounds almost simple, open up the economy. You can't take people's livelihoods away. I don't know what the government thinks. As I said, something has to give. If you don't let people open their stores, if you don't bring consumption back to at least at least pre-COVID levels, um, if not higher than pre-COVID levels, I don't. the government is just living in fantasy land. So number one, yeah, uh, interprovincial. Number two, um, open up the economy. Let people do business. We've, we've shown there's socially distanced ways of doing it. And if you believe the vaccines are going to work, then that ties in with it. And then number three, you start opening the border a little bit more, at least to trade with other countries. If we don't do three of those three things, you're just condemning the economy for further downward shocks. And, it, it, and you know, you use the word sacrifice. It's absolutely sacrificing economic health for public health, and they are equally important. And it really is true, is it not, that emotion plays a role, a significant role, whether we're talking about stock markets or whether we're talking about uh, what you're going to buy that you need for your home. 
emotional stability, the sense that you're doing something that is going to return some level of stability and maybe even some profitability is critically important. It isn't just critically important. There's a theory. It's called the theory of self-fulfilling prophecies. And, you know, you've hit, you've hit the, the proverbial hammer on the nail, which is if you keep telling people the system is going into the gutter, the system is going to go into the gutter. So how about for 2021, my wish for society and my wish for our policymakers is let's start giving people a ray of hope. Let's open some borders. Let's open some stores. Let's give people back some livelihood. And then maybe you'll turn the corner emotionally and intellectually of people saying, you know what, I'm bouncing back. And when that happens, the economy will bounce back. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy. We've seen it work in the negative. Let's bring it back in the positive. Okay, so uh, if that doesn't happen, I hate to go there, but I'm going to. If that doesn't happen, if we have another year, of covid and um you know delayed uh, major vaccination system in place for this country if things stay as they are now how bad is it going to be two years from now three years from now levels that you that you and i have never lived through may never live through that we can't understand i mean i know that i rattled off a lot of variables today and i'm sorry how many i tried to shove into a short conversation but take them and decrease each and every one of them again. And all that's going to mean is the government paying people to stay at home. And all that's going to mean are levels of debt and deficit financing that we will never, period, pay ourselves out from. It will never happen. We are condemning the economy. Remember I said the very first time we spoke, we may never get back to pre-COVID levels. I remember that. We can do this once. We can't do this for another year or another year after that, or the answer is, you've condemned us to economic hardship for a generation. Interesting you say that. We can do it once, because Yves Giroux, the parliamentary budget officer on this program, the first time he was on, and he's been on quite a few times over the last six months, Mr. Giroux said the same thing when he talked about government borrowing and the massive uh, deficit and the hugely expanding national debt. He said you can do it once, but you cannot do it a second time. Well, that's true. I mean, I don't know how the, the green household works, but my credit card has a limit. Uh, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, the government of Canada's credit card doesn't have a limit. And, you know, if you want me to put a silver lining in this, I talked about the debt-to-GDP ratio that was at about 30% when this started. And that was a very, very low number, and you want it to be a low number. Thanks to COVID, it's ballooned to about 50%. Now, that may make some people jump. It, it makes me jump as an economist. But as a consumer, I have to tell you the truth, 50% isn't that bad when you compare us to the rest of the industrialized world. So the glass half full is that we we are now kind of where many countries are in terms of our debt levels. We used to be great. Now we're kind of average. You talk about the delay that you're speaking of for another year or two, that average is going to turn to horrible. We recognize the disadvantage that Canada has of not having a domestic pharmaceutical industry able to create, to mass produce vaccines. Uh, But that's why we went above and beyond in securing access to uh, more doses per capita than just about any other country of the potential vaccines out there. Okay, so uh, Paul Lucas for 16 years was the president and CEO of GlaxoSmithKline Pharmaceuticals in Canada. Mr. Lucas was a guest on this program. At the beginning of the month, and I thought that once we started talking about rollout numbers and we started talking about what was going to happen in this country and how long we would have to wait, that we uh, would do well to speak with Mr. Lucas again. And he wrote a piece, a nine-page piece, 
um, early in the month. COVID vaccines for Canada, a sad story. And Paul Lucas rejoins us on the Roy Green Show. Mr. Lucas, when you hear the Prime Minister say what he said, what's your reaction? Well, um, it's one of um, surprise a bit, because I just like to hear the Prime Minister be honest about what's happening with the vaccine plan for Canada. Um, He talked about the fact that uh, we didn't have domestic vaccine production capability in Canada, which isn't isn't really true. Uh, There are at least a couple of companies that have that capability, maybe not to produce the RNA vaccine, but uh, they can produce other vaccines. And with good planning and preparation, um, there probably were some companies that could actually produce a vaccine uh, in Canada for this pandemic, but it didn't happen. Uh, the Prime Minister also talks about the fact that uh, uh, they've secured uh, a great, um, I guess, collection of vaccines uh, for Canada going forward. Uh, and it is true that they have done seven deals with seven companies. Uh, but the big issue is how quickly are we going to get doses uh, that compare with other countries around the world? And you alluded to this. So there was no need. There's no need for this country, actually. There shouldn't have been any need for this country for Canadians to wait as long as we're going to have to wait for the vaccines in, in the numbers that we require. Absolutely. In fact, when you, when you look at the facts, uh, and Mr. Trudeau, I, I have been tracking what he's been saying uh, in public around the vaccine portfolio that Canada has. Uh, and the last one I tracked was that uh, he stated that uh, we are better on vaccines than just about every other country. Uh, well, that's just not true. Yes, we have seven contracts, but Europe has six contracts. The U.K. has seven contracts. The U.S. has eight contracts. Uh, so we're no better on that front, really. We have contracted for five times as many doses as we actually need in this country, um, which may be a good way to hedge your bets, but maybe we could have used some of that money to uh, do some other things which would be uh, more constructive. Uh, the big issue is how quickly are we getting the vaccines, of course. And um, when you look at the numbers, they're pretty stark. So when you look at December, for example, uh, with respect to the Pfizer vaccine, uh, we're going to receive about a quarter of a million doses. Uh, the U.S. is going to acquire... 160 times that number for the month of December. So they're 10 times larger than we are. You would think they'd get 10 times the number of doses, but they're going to get 160 times. The UK is twice as large as Canada. Uh, They are going to get 16 times the the number of uh, Pfizer doses than we get. So clearly there's a big difference in December. And when you actually project into the end of uh, March, um, we're still at a significant disadvantage in terms of access to early doses. So uh, we're going to have, by that time, 6 million doses of the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine. That will allow us to vaccinate less than 10% of our population. The U.S., by that time, should have vaccinated probably 100 million people, uh, or almost 30% of their population. And the U.K. is saying that by the end of March, they will have vaccinated everyone over the age of 65. So the numbers just don't add up in terms of the story that Mr. Trudeau tells. And I, as I said at the outset, I just wish that he would be honest with Canadians about what is happening and what our situation is. Because I think Canadians are going to be quite upset, and they've already started to hear that 
they may be able to get, as, as a snowbird, if you're a snowbird, you may be able to get vaccinated in the U.S. before you can get vaccinated here if you're over 70, 70 yeah. years old. I'm just reading uh, the first page, the introduction to your earlier piece in December. COVID vaccines for Canada, a sad story. And uh, you say in part, as president and CEO of GlaxoSmithKline Canada for 16 years, I was intimately involved in the production and distribution of the Canadian vaccine for the H1N1 pandemic in 2009. The vaccine was developed, rolled out, and injected into millions of Canadians in just several months. You're going to say millions of doses of Canada's annual flu vaccine are also produced in the GSK facility in Quebec City. This despite comments by Mr. Trudeau and some of his ministers that this facility was closed down during the Harper years. So that facility remains open, does it? Absolutely. And I, that, was the, that was the comment that uh, motivated me to write about this and uh, try and bring the facts out. Because I'm, I don't work in the pharmaceutical industry anymore. I'm an independent citizen. Uh, I just happen to have been very involved in the vaccine business over the years in Canada, and I, I just want to look at the facts. And the facts don't always stack up when you listen to Mr. Trudeau and what he tells the Canadian public. So, if we're looking for a bottom line, and I have other questions for you as well, mm-hmm. Mr. Lucas, but if we're looking at a bottom line statement, if we're looking at a sort of a, a summary of what you said in December in COVID vaccines for Canada, a sad story. And we know why you're motivated to write this. You just told us, and you told us on December 3rd, I think it was. How do you summarize what you wrote in those nine pages? Well, I think it's mainly that the Canadian uh, government, the federal government, and particularly the Liberal Party of Canada, because they were they were in power for most of the time that I was involved in 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 uh, the industry. Um, the government was not particularly supportive of the pharmaceutical industry in Canada. They did not create an environment that was conducive to attracting investment, encouraging the industry, and as a consequence, um, the industry. Uh, began to leave, and uh, the the amount of investment that they have made in Canada has declined. And and what's somewhat shocking to me uh, is that even today, um, as we're in this pandemic, and the and the federal government is trying to acquire as many vaccines as possible through their procurement ministry. On January first, the health ministry is going to implement a new set of pricing rules for the pharmaceutical industry that are some of the most punitive in the Western world. And so, you know, it's, it, it's very surprising that uh, maybe the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing in Ottawa, uh, but why would you go out and knock your suppliers over the head while you're trying to acquire more doses of vaccine <laughs> yeah. from them? Yeah. So this has been a long-standing uh, trend in the federal government, particularly the Liberal Party, and it started with Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and here we are through Chrétien and now uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, creating an environment that is not conducive to a vibrant pharmaceutical industry in Canada. So, I mean, it's become fashionable to savage the pharmaceutical industry, just call you a big pharma and you're just the bad guys who are only interested in making huge billions of dollars and 
And so it's like a public relations campaign to just savage the pharmaceutical industry. My theory is, my feeling is, that if you're creating um, medicines and uh, and the opportunity for people to retain their health, uh, let's do everything we can to encourage that. Not to, as you said to us last time, difficult for you as a president of the Canadian arm of Glaxo to persuade the parent company to put money into Canada given the fact that uh, what the governments were doing, what the Canadian government was doing, because they can put their money elsewhere. But so if these if these issues had not taken place, if these steps had not taken place by previous federal governments and this one, would you say that our vaccine rollout might be similar to that of the, of the United States? Was that potential there for us? Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, the industry has been very willing uh, to invest in Canada. Um, they have gone to the federal government numerous times with proposals about how they can do that. Uh, and that's happened over the last 30, 40 years. Um, so when Mulroney changed the patent laws in Canada to improve them after Trudeau basically took the patent laws away, um, the investment from the industry went from $100 million a year to a $1 billion a year in just a few short years. So that really demonstrated that if you create an environment that's conducive to investment, the industry will come. And having headed up GlaxoSmithKline, uh, we had a pharmaceutical manufacturing plant uh, here in Mississauga, and we built that in the early 90s, and we had the vaccine plant in Quebec City. So we were very willing to invest. Uh, however, um, as I say, the, the environment has just become more and more difficult for companies to be successful here. And what, what was really surprising to me again was just recently, and again, it's amazing that uh, this decision was taken. So the industry ministry in Ottawa just in the last few weeks, after months of talking with various industries in Canada as to how they might be pivotal industries coming out of the out of the pandemic, the government decided, the industry minister decided that the pharmaceutical industry and the life sciences industry was not pivotal to Canada's future coming out of the pandemic and is not going to be one of its pivotal industries. So even after learning that the pharmaceutical industry was really the only the only way out of this pandemic, and its true value is really being shown today. Um, the The government of Canada still doesn't really want it here. So we're going to line up the pharmaceutical industry with the energy industry. Well, that's an interesting point. Um, you would think that you would think that those are two industries that you know we we would want to have in Canada. I certainly would. The pharmaceutical sector, you know, is, is, is a really valuable industry in terms of being able to help improve the healthcare, uh, the, the healthcare system. But it also um, provides some very high-value jobs. You know, you're, you employ PhDs and physicians and uh, master's degrees and so on. And we've lost thousands of those jobs in Canada over the last number of years here uh, from the industry. Roy at RoyGreenshow.com and Warren in part says, I'm more than tired of our Prime Minister coming on TV, radio, and print media every day to say little or nothing about what's really going on with COVID-19 vaccines and the state of our health as a nation. This is a job for the Federal Health Minister, not the PM. 
Looks like his liberal backroom boys are just wanting to put his voice and face in front of Canadians every day in preparation for the next election. I'm seeing a lot of emails of that tone. Thank you, Warren. Roy at RoyGreenShow.com is the email address. Paul Lucas is our guest. For 16 years, Mr. Lucas was the president and CEO of GlaxoSmithKline, a huge pharmaceutical firm internationally, and uh, Mr. Lucas was the president in Canada. So here's here's an interesting question, Mr. Lucas. If our vaccine rollout is much slower than it needs to be, and it will stay much slower than it needs to be, based on what you've told us, And if people suffer because they can't get the vaccine as quickly as they might, that's quite an an indictment of the government, isn't it? Well, I think it is. And and, um, when when I look at the numbers, eventually we will have sufficient vaccine to vaccinate everybody in Canada. However, for the next three months through to the end of March, we will have a, a real small number of vaccines available. And some people would, and so basically we're three to four months behind the U.S., the U.K., and probably Europe now in terms of uh, vaccinating a large number of people early on. And Mr. Trudeau again came out with a statement that said, well, you know, it's, it's important, uh, at the beginning of a vaccination program, but it's more important in the middle and more important at the end, which just isn't true. you know, the fact that we're slow ramping up vaccines in, in quarter one of 2021 means that's three additional or four additional months of more deaths, more hospitalizations, more businesses going under, more impact on our economy. So it's going to be a very, very difficult three months. I think this is going to be the worst three months that we've experienced in the pandemic because it's winter. People are getting frustrated. Uh, they don't want to uh, abide by the, the uh, public health guidelines. And we don't have enough vaccine, whereas other countries like the U.S., U.K., Europe are going to be vaccinated at a much higher rate. So, you know, it's, that, that's a real issue for us as Canadians. In, in 30 seconds is what we have left. Would there be interest within the pharmaceutical industry to invest in Canada now? Well, it's going to be very difficult uh, because maybe maybe the government of Canada has gone too far with this latest pricing uh, regime that they're putting in place. Uh, they could isolate Canada even further in terms of investment. So it's not a good situation. I think it's going to have to take a change in government in order to, uh, to turn this around uh, and put us in a much better position. We should be doing much better. We did have a, pre, a pandemic plan in Canada that the public health agency has had in for years. But for some reason, the government did not implement it uh, and discarded parts of it. And so, you know, we are in a difficult position. I think the federal government does need to carry the can for, okay. uh, for putting Canadians in a position where we're not going to be as secure as, as the rest of the Western okay. world. Ron Foxcroft is chairman of Fox 40 Companies, national and international business group, also chairman of the board of Hamilton International Airport and LaGuardia Airport in New York City. He is, of course, the inventor of the world-famous Fox 40 whistle, which is uh, used by the NFL, the NBA, the uh, CFL, by 
NCAA, um, all the divisions, all the teams in the NCAA, and um, CFL, as I said, it's it's everywhere. And without the Fox 40 and without the the, the spit guard that, uh, that's on that whistle that's now been made available, we wouldn't be watching pro sports. But let's talk to, uh, to Ron about the impact of COVID on national and international business, how the Fox 40 companies made the decision to survive and not become a statistic. We'll talk a bit about government subsidies. And uh, Ron, if I can start with this, and good to have you on the show, um, you say that business will never be the same. Could you explain that to us? No, it won't, Roy. And and our business is quite diverse. Uh, and and that's one of the things that that has kept us going. Our um, innovation, our vision, and our diversity. We're in um, supply chain management with our trucking and warehousing company. At Fox Forty, we supply safety, search and rescue products, and also, as you mentioned in your introduction. Uh, sporting goods products, and as chairman of John C. Monroe Hamilton International Airport, we're very close to hospitality, travel, tourism, uh, which have, uh, as you know, and and everybody in the country knows, uh, travel and tourism, the restaurant industry, hospitality are really, really suffering. And and Roy, you're entirely right. Um, I've been in business my entire life, in my own business my entire life, and I can honestly tell you that uh, business will never be the same. For example, uh, IT technology has been uh, paramount. Well, the, the most important thing, paramount to everybody, health and safety of your employees. That is absolutely number one. We come into work, we wear PPE equipment, we wear masks, we work behind plastic shields, uh, we, we sanitize our companies every single night before coming back to work the next day. A couple of other things, uh, people are learning fundamentally how to work on site safely and how to work remotely safety, which has put a lot of pressure on IT technology, making sure IT technology is strong, safe, and secure. Also, Roy, the, the rise of e-commerce has just been staggering to everybody. Yeah, and, and it, it is a, it's a huge factor. At the same time, we have the small business community in this country uh, struggling and uh, struggling mightily, and many of them will not make it. But you made a decision when you and I exchanged emails and we talked. You made a decision as a company to survive rather than be a statistic. How did you do that? Yes. How do you, gathered, how do you do that? You know what, Roy? The secret to to being an entrepreneur, hire many smart people, smarter than you, and 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 listen to them. And you know, when when the pandemic hit in March, it was a shock. It was just a terrible shock. One of the things that we don't talk about, Roy, uh, in in our trucking company, we cannot work remotely. We have to work on site. And, and things you don't talk about is, is how your employees adjust to this pandemic. It's like how some people uh, handle diversity a lot different than other people. So the, the one thing is the, the leadership that you have to provide your company, the calming of people that are coming in working in different circumstances than they've ever worked on before. So we gathered our leadership team and we decided we were not going to allow negativity 
and we were going to ramp up with innovation, uh, vision, and diversity. And I'll just give you an example. At Fox 40, of course, we make the Fox 40 P-less whistle and, and sell it in 140 countries around the world, 200 other products. But all of a sudden, sport wasn't plain. So we had to adjust to help sport restart. We came up with a, a line of products called Close Proximity Safety Products. And if you turn on the TV and watch sport, and sport right now emotionally, Roy, is like a light in a storm. It's kind of giving people a relief from yes, all is. the bad news that they watch in the media. And we yeah. came up with this line of Close Proximity Safety Products and when you turn on TV and watch sport, our products are being used in sport that's restarted by the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, and so on. So it was so. Just- so, so, Fox, if I understand it correctly, you you see you you're faced with a, a challenge, a huge challenge, as everybody in the economy is facing. But you, as an entrepreneur and a business owner, have to deal with it every day, head on. So you, you face the challenge, you identify the need, and you meet the need, and you create your own survival. That's exactly right, and, and you do not allow negativity. And then you have to become diverse, and you have to become innovative. For example, Roy, uh, 110,000 restaurants in the United States will not come back. They, they have not survived. I understand there's at least 10,000 restaurants in Canada that will never come back again. But the ones that have, have survived, they've, um, they've adopted, they've made adjustments to uh, pickup, uh, delivery. Have you seen, Roy, outdoor patios, uh, you know, restaurants that have never, ever thought of Dining outdoors in patios have made that adjustment to survive. And, and we've done that too. And, and you know what? Um, I'll tell you early in March and April, I, I got to applaud the government because I, I think a lot of fellow entrepreneurs like myself, um, we're thankful for the wage subsidy. We're thankful for the rent subsidy. Now, you know, I I know there's criticisms uh, everywhere about the rent subsidy and so on, but this has helped many of us survive. The other thing, Roy, I want to make a point. For about six weeks there, we eliminated crappy, old-fashioned, partisan politics. All the parties worked together during March and April for the good of the country because everybody recognized we're in something here that we've never experienced before, and it's um, and 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 it's we have to make the adjustment for that. Let me ask you about the trucking side of things. And you said it's important to have diversity in the businesses that you have, and you've done that. You've you had the foresight over the years to create diverse businesses that can complement each other and support each other. But how's the trucking industry doing? Uh, our sense is that it's been one of the more stable industries over this last 10 months during the pandemic. And then what about the airlines and the airports? How is that business faring? Can we start with the trucking side of things? Absolutely, Roy. You know, our truck drivers and the people that work at uh, at the trucking company, and we're very diverse. We keep the supply chain going. If you see it in a um, grocery store or if you see it in a big box store or a pharmacy store, chances are we trucked it. And as you know, in April... We had quite a run on toilet paper and paper products. 
but just like the front uh, front line health care workers the truck drivers are the real heroes roy because they can't work remote they have to come in they have to work every day they have to go into warehouses they have to go into big box stores and it was a real it was a different situation because the supply chain you know roy during a pandemic is very important that we keep the grocery stores shelves filled Absolutely. and the big box stores filled and it was quite an adjustment and i guess the big adjustment was we could not work remotely we had to come in every day health and safety was paramount and mm-hmm. we took the trucking company and sanitized the entire building every single day. Now, what about the airline side of things? Oh, boy, Roy, I'll tell you, the airline industry are really, really hurting, as is tourism and hospitality. At John C. Monroe Hamilton International Airport, we're very fortunate because we are the largest overnight cargo airport in Canada. So... You know, with the advent during the pandemic of and the rise of e-commerce, the the cargo end of our airport at uh, at Hamilton John C Monroe was very very brisk and it actually increased by about eleven or twelve percent. However, just like the airlines and other passenger service airports. Our sales and our passenger activity dropped down. We we dropped about um, anywhere from 85 to 91 percent, with wow. a lot of fixed costs. So, wow. Roy, uh, it's it's a real problem. It's a real problem. Um, I don't see it bouncing back quickly in 2021. I think we have to be realistic about that because. Just the very simple fact, um, people right now are reluctant to travel. Um, people are making adjustments to working yeah. online with yeah. and e-commerce and so on. So I don't see the passenger uh, airlines uh, bouncing back in 2021. I think. Ron, let me ask you. Let me ask you this: As far as your other companies are concerned, all the companies that you have now, you work with other companies that are owned by other people. Are you finding that um, the other companies, m- many of the companies that you're working with across the sector, across the various business sectors, are they struggling? Are you losing uh, businesses? Are you finding yourself suddenly not dealing with somebody anymore because they don't exist any longer? Roy. I have to be blunt and tell you just about every business that we deal with, all of our vendors are scared. They're worried because the future is unpredictable. Now, we've had some good news lately about the possibility of the vaccines, right. and that can't happen fast enough. But, you know, when when we decided we had to, at Fox 40, come up with these close proximity safety products, we got together with a company, a Canadian company called Nico Apparel to help us make those products. Now, without us, of course, that's an example. They were struggling because, you know, an apparel company uh, and a sport uh, apparel company, Roy, there wasn't any sport and there still isn't any much sport in, in Canada. There's a little mm-hmm. bit of sport in the United States. But I would have to summarize it by this. The future is unpredictable. Everybody is concerned, but you have to be have vision, you have to have innovation, and 
you can't allow negativity. You just cannot allow Okay, negativity. on that note then, let's go back to the issue of politics and politicians and political parties. And you said that in April, and I think you're right, there was a period, a brief period, where it was understood that partisan politics really wasn't going to be sort of the order of the day. It couldn't be the order of the day. There was always going to be partisan politics. And we had other things develop during the uh, pandemic, like the We Charity Scandal situation with the federal government and Mr. Trudeau. But then now it's back to, oh, my God, are they going to have an election? So are they going to call an election? So now we have to position ourselves for the election. And is it your fear, your concern, your observation, perhaps, that political parties are more interested in I don't want to put you on the spot, but I will. They're more interested in their own survival, or that's their number one interest. Am I off base on that? You're bang on, Roy, and you're not putting me on the spot. I just love March and April, where all the political parties united for the better of the country, for the better of the citizens. We're right back to it again, uh, Roy, where the... the, um, Parties that are in power want to retain the power, and the powers that are the uh, parties that are not in power want to be critics. And uh, you know what, Roy? We need to get back to the way it was in March and April and unite for the good of the country. Partisan politics is bad. Let's get back to uniting for the good of the country. And you're not putting me on the spot. I'm not, I'm not being critical of the elected officials. You become an elected official, you give your life to, to public life, and, and it's not your fault. It's the system, Roy. It's the system. And, you know, these parties that are not in power come up with good ideas. Work with the party that's in power. Yeah, you know what Stop the best idea is, to get the party that's in power out of power. That's what their idea that's, is. That's that's what they're And I don't blame for. them because it's a competitive situation. Yeah, and I'm it, glad it was always you us, that. right? Uh, uh, you know what, Roy? Partisan politics and you know it's it's really really bad mm-hmm. in the United States. It's yeah, not well, as bad yeah. as Canada because, you know, um, we're we're different. We're different as uh, Canadians. Uh, we like to work together and we've got compassion and we care. But no, we need all political parties as they say rowing in the same direction because be we're change. all in this together <laughs> yeah ron let me ask you uh, and we have 30 seconds here as you look down and you've said we have to really weather 2021 yep are you hopeful that by 2022 boy that's a long way away by 2022 things will be uh, on a more even keel or are you trying to circumspect about that that's a great question. I feel very positive that things are going to rebound in 2022 because, Roy, we as business people are judged on how we handle adversity. And we mm-hmm. have handled a lot of adversity in 2020. Yes, We're going to handle a lot of adversity in 2021. Yeah. We're going to come out a better country. Well, this country is better for having you because you have contributed so much to so many for so long You have more than earned your Order of Canada designation or membership. Thank you for everything you do. Entrepreneur of the Year, Basketball Hall of Fame, so many Halls of Fame. Among the top 50 sports officials in the world, Ron Foxcroft, Fox 40. Let's talk about this variant of uh, COVID-19. 
We've been hearing more and more about it, and we know now that it is in Canada. And joining us is uh, Dr. Zain Chagla, Dr. Zain Chagla, Infectious Diseases Specialist at McMaster University in Hamilton. Dr. Chagla, thank you very much for the time. And what do we know definitively about this COVID-19 variant? And it's not really unexpected, is it? Mm. No, I mean, so viruses mutate, and I think that's every life form on Earth mutates to some degree. Viruses mutate a little bit more because their genetic code is a bit more unstable. So there's always going to be a baseline rate of mutations. And in fact, it's how we actually use uh, the virus or how we actually figure out fingerprinting of the virus to say where it's been and where it's come from. The UK has been doing a really good job actually sequencing its virus. So actually trying to get the whole genetic uh, code, basically, and again, compare viruses over time in their communities to a set number of samples. In September, they noticed this variant amongst the others that were mixed in. In the population, there's a bunch of different variants. And I think, you know, as, as November, December went about, particularly in that South uh, East London area, they started seeing more and more and more of these particular variants showing up with these mutations that were exactly the same. And so there was always a worry there. You know, when, when you start seeing something show up more often, there's a worry it becomes much more transmissible uh, or there's been an event which led to a bunch of seeding. And as it's developed and developed and developed and looking at the history of the people, particularly amongst the fact that they've been in fairly strict restrictions since uh, November, the thought is based on some of the modeling data that this transmits a bit more than the typical virus. Um, so- yeah, sorry. So, sorry, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I, I, you know, go ahead and finish your thought, please. Yeah, so, so this is where this got identified in the last couple of weeks, this, this signature of mutations. The concern is that one of the mutations exists, the spike protein is where, where the virus kind of attaches to the human body. And so the thought is, is that is what leads to more transmission. It makes a tighter bond. And so when one is exposed, it may be much more likely that someone gets COVID-19 from this variant than uh, an exposure with the virus that would exist here in Canada, for example. So we've heard, and it's been supposed, that it's not likely going to have much of an effect on the efficacy of the vaccines. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you share that thought? Yeah, absolutely. I'm again. So if you look at the, the spike protein, it's, you know, the, the genetic code is like, 1,200 elements, basically, 1,200 proteins or amino acids, sorry, uh, that that make up that amount. There are a handful of mutations there in that 1,200 amino acids. So 99% of the spike protein is exactly the same as the one that's in the virus um, in the vaccine. Uh, Knowing that and knowing how our bodies respond to COVID-19, they don't target that necessarily that 1% region. They target the entire protein you know, the likelihood is that the vaccine is going to be very conserved moving forward. Uh, Moderna and Pfizer are both looking at people that have had the vaccine and are just looking at blood samples and inoculating it with the virus and saying, OK, does it actually work 100 percent just to prove it? But from all indications, biologically, it should still be an effective strategy. And in fact, the U.K., has doubled down on the vaccine approach, knowing that, you know, this variant is occurring, knowing that, again, this is the biggest tool in the chest right now. Okay, Dr. Chagla, given the news that this uh-huh. coronavirus variant is in this country, and coupled with concerns about international flights arriving uh-huh. in Canada, 
you have thoughts on whether Canada or how Canada's border controls might be reviewed and changed. Could you share that with us? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we at the beginning of this pandemic, we had this 14-day quarantine strategy at the beginning. And I think, you know, given that we didn't have great testing, it was a cheap and effective strategy that you really just had to have the manpower to observe. We really cut off many, many flights. You know, I, I think it gave us the ability to control the borders very carefully and limit the amount of travel-related spread after we figured it out. However, you know, there are more flights coming in. There's more people going back to the United States. There are more pleasure travelers than there were in April and May. Um, and, you know, the border still is a threat. You know, we are also hearing about variants in Nigeria. We're hearing about variants in South Africa. And both of those countries, you know, some of the U.K., have the ability to do sequencing and really get a good sense of what's going on with their viral control in their country. Uh, and so, you know, realistically, countries that don't have access to it but have a significant amount of virus may have similar variants. It makes that point of entry so much more important. And I think now that we have better testing, particularly around the world, but also in Canada, adding testing as a requirement and in fact, even potentially using it to shorten the quarantine period to make it more effective may be the strategy going forward. And, and particularly knowing as well, after, even after this vaccine campaign, the border is still going to be an issue with us. You know, we may need to think about a long-term strategy that really does try to actively identify infectious people coming over the border and isolating them rather than relying on people's good intentions and quarantine for uh, protecting the rest of our population. So I have about 30 seconds left. Uh, did Canada properly learn from previous viral invaders like SARS and H1N1, have we done our homework properly? You know, I would take that back and say COVID-19 is different than every pandemic known. Um, you know, certainly H1N1 came over the border. It was Mexican, you know. So, so you know, that one was hard to control at the point of entry. Um, SARS, you know, we did invoke quarantine eventually, and I think we did do that at some point at the beginning of this. But again, you know, the, the fact that this virus has basically gone to every corner of the earth makes it probably the biggest pandemic known to mankind at this point. And so, you know, I think the border strategy is just it's so much different than years past because we are just dealing with everywhere and anywhere other than a couple of places on earth. Okay. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.